Man, guys, it is good to be here with you guys. My name is Tony. I'm on staff here with the Salt Company. And tonight, we're going to be continuing our teaching series through the life of David as we engage with the story of David and Bathsheba. So if you've got a Bible out with you, I'd like you to turn to 2 Samuel 11. It is hard to find. I'll just be real. You've got to use your table of contents, and it's 11 and 12, okay? It's a narrative. Read it like a book. Take it out. Good stuff. As I was getting pumped and nerding out hard, like hip deep and commentaries about the intricacies of this narrative, Josh sent me this really insightful text that made me pause and like reconsider everything I had prepped so far. And this is, what I, this is what he sent me, and I quote, you get the sex sermon every time, L-M-A-O-O-O. <laughs> and immediately I was like, dang it. It's like every time this year, I like looked back at our teaching schedule and I was like, oh no, this is, this is a repeating thing, but we're going to do it again tonight, okay? So take out your Bibles, 2 Samuel 11, that's right, Josh, where to get your quote in there? Um, so that's going to be good. Break the ice, as they say, you know? Okay, we're going to have a conversation around David and Bathsheba, and I just want to give you a quick heads up in this conversation. One... This is a hard story to hear. This is a hard story to dive into. This is a hard story to preach from. But I also want us to see that there's actually beautiful redemption that happens throughout the story. And that if you've grown up at church around at all, okay, this is like the second most famous story about David. Drake took the first one. And it's cooler, okay? So thanks, Drake. But it's the second most famous story about David. And you might have heard it taught in a couple different ways. And I want to show you in the biblical text what might be the correct hermeneutic or the correct, inter correct interpretation of the text. And I want us to engage with the depth of this narrative, okay? So as I begin to dig into the contextual evidence surrounding this story, I realize that David and Bathsheba isn't simply about sex. I know I introed the sermon like that, so it's a little bit deceiving. It's not simply about sex. But actually, this is a story about power. This is a story that shows the sinfulness of man and a God whose holiness requires justice. I'm going to read a quote out from Kyle Worley that I, that I think gives us the correct lens in which to view this story. You can look up on the screens. It'll be up for you. We have to consider that we may have misread this story in a major way. Our misunderstanding and misrepresentation of what happened with David and Bathsheba may result in a truncated understanding of God's good vision of power and sex, just when we are so desperately need a holy vision for these things. So, Kamini, I want you to know, I joke around a lot in my sermons, this isn't going to be one of those sermons, that the reality of this story is a story that is a historical narrative about a king who uses his power not to serve and love, but a king who took the dignity and body of a woman, who killed her husband in concealing it, and repented to God of the deep brokenness inside of him. So that's the story that we're going to dive into tonight. But before we get into the meat of that, I, I do want to say really quickly, a quick aside for you, that for some of us in this room, there are going to be pieces of this narrative that actually trigger uh, trauma that comes from wounds that we've had when we were a child or, or, or earlier in our lives. And, and this story involves sexual assault and sexual abuse, and I want you to know that if that's you in this room and you've come in here with that, 
that please don't leave this room without at least talking to Jesus about it, if not one of our staff members. We want you to know we don't just care that you're in the room. We want you to know that you're loved in the room. And so please engage the conversation with us and know that there is absolutely no shame with no asterisks on what you've been through. Let's open up to 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. And this is the scene that we find ourselves in, scene one, powerful sin takes. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And he inquired about the woman, and the one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Because I want to give you guys some context of 2 Samuel 1 through 10, Okay. There's 24 chapters, I believe, in 2 Samuel. 1 to 10 is David crushing it. It's him living into the call that God had given him for his life. He was finally the king that Israel had hoped for. Saul was a bad one. David was a good one. And he was living the life that God had called him to do and was living into the blessing. But we find that in this moment of chapter 11, this is when everything begins to crumble. This is when his sin begins to send him spiraling down. And this, this one sin would actually end up marking his story and his legacy forever. And guys, I, I, I want us to be able to intercept our story with David's story. Because I think sometimes we read a story in the Bible from literally 3,000 years ago. And we think to ourselves, okay, I'm not a king in Jerusalem. My assumption. I'm not a king in Jerusalem. I don't live that type of life. I haven't sexually assaulted or murdered anyone. Well, how could my life be any resemblance of David's? But I think we find ourselves in this moment where David was comfortable and we've also been comfortable. Okay, so look with me to verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. Okay, so here's the context in which we find David. This is what kings used to do in Israel in the spring. They would go out with their, or with their armies to fight battles on the behalf of the Lord. But we find ourselves in this situation where everyone else has gone out, all his boys, all his mighty men, that's probably the correct biblical term, all his mighty men went out, and yet David stays back in Jerusalem. Okay, why does he do that? Because I think for him, he got to a point where he finally believed he arrived. Okay, all that anointing stuff, all that shepherding stuff that David talked, or that um, Drake talked about and David and Goliath, all this type of rough work that it took for him to become faithful, for him to set up the kingdom that he had, I think he believed he arrived. And, I, and what I want to draw you into is that's a really horrible place to be. Because the worst place that you could ever be is to believe that you've arrived as a Christian. That somehow you've graduated from the gospel, right? Like, okay, yeah, I used to learn about the gospel back when I first came to know Jesus a couple years ago, but now I'm good. Now I'll read books about sociology and kind of outwit you on these different theological topics, but I don't need to repent of my sin, to be honest about my brokenness, to be real about the ways that I'm falling short of the glory of God. And David had arrived 
and he was bored. Okay? Let's look at verse 2. That David was pacing on his roof. Now, the word walk here in Hebrew is closer to the word pace. So the, the imagery I think we're supposed to get here, he was kind of looking for trouble. And he was bored. All his friends were gone. His mission and vision was gone. And so he was at his home bored. And here's what I want to ask you. You ever notice you sin more when you're bored? Like, I'm not kidding, man. It's like, best way to make someone sin, make them bored. Like, take away their responsibilities and their vision and goals for their life. We've all been there. And that's the reality that David's in. His mission and vision and God's calling on his life, he chooses to take a step away from, to stay home, to sit and, and slide into apathy. And now he's bored. And now he's about to sin. Let's look at verse 4. 3 and 4. And, and this is what happens. He sees Bathsheba, and immediately he notices that she's beautiful. Okay, how do you notice that something's beautiful? You don't just glance, but you glare. You look. See, David in this moment had a choice whether he could look at Bathsheba or take a look away, but he chose to fixate on Bathsheba because she was beautiful. And not only did he look at her beauty, but then he takes her body. He sends messengers, and the language here is that he took her, brought her, and lay with her. These are action words from a man to a woman. And I want us to feel some of the weight of this story. Because there's a temptation when you hear Bible stories of like, oh yeah, I learned about that in Sunday school, or I've read about that before, but I want you to see exactly what this was like. He took a woman who had a husband because she was beautiful, but for no other reason. There's no biblical commentary that he loved the intellect of this woman or he loved the character of this woman, but here's who she was, Bathsheba the beautiful, and then he took because he desired more to fulfill the cravings of lust in his soul than for the goodness of that human being who he knew had dignity as an image bearer of God. We need to feel the weight of this moment, and then just like that, he kicks her out like a one-night stand. Verse 4. She goes back home, she realizes that she's pregnant, and then sends word to David. And guys, to make matters worse, let me just set, I know that this is really dark, but let me just set a further context of this story. Her husband Uriah wasn't a stranger. It would have been insidious enough for this king of Israel to look at this beautiful woman and only define her by her looks, not by the way that God made her, and then to take her. But Uriah was one of David's mighty men who had fought on behalf of David for years getting him into that place and was on the battlefield risking his life while the man he was risking his life for was taking the one woman he loved. And guys, I've, I've heard this story preached, and I want us to ask a question that I've often heard brought up in this sermon, which is, was Bathsheba beckoning David by being able to be seen bathing. So let me build a hypothetical scenario, right? You're on the roof of your palace. You got a hot tub, a grill terrace, overhead lighting because you're cool, and other very nice amenities because you have a palace in Minneapolis, okay? It's a good time. You love your palace. You walk out onto the roof of your palace, you look out from your palace, and you see a beautiful woman or man that is naked. 
Are you tempted? Do you have a pulse? The answer is yes, I think. You are tempted. But, and here's the big but, does that give you free agency to do to that person what David did to Bathsheba? No. All of us would never think that to be true. And yet, isn't that the excuse we use when this actually happens in real life? See, the David was, or David saw Bathsheba naked excuse is the same excuse we use today. And it's the, well, come on, man. I mean, it was late at night. Or, or she shouldn't have been wearing that. Or maybe she had one too many. But my point in this question is to identify that it doesn't matter. That it doesn't matter whether or not David or Bathsheba knew that David could see here. What mattered here is that the sin of this man was that he was a man in power. As he looked at this woman, he took what she had, and she had no ability to say no. See, the question doesn't even matter. But because I did some nerding out, I want to give you a little bit of reason why she wasn't. I want to defend her dignity in this moment and show you that Bathsheba wasn't luring in David by her being naked. Okay, we know this for a couple different reasons. One is because the purpose of her bathing wasn't to entice someone else, but was actually to cleanse herself for your purification rites in reflection of Leviticus 15, the laws of the Torah. So let me take this story a little bit deeper. This king looks at a woman that is bathing herself to honor God and takes her for his own sexual pleasure. Nowhere in the biblical narrative does it ever say that Bathsheba was on her own roof. That was a myth that was created in the 15th century by a painter who wanted to paint Bathsheba as a part blame for the sin. Okay, but why does this matter for us? Why does it matter that we don't deflect our sin? Because I, I want us to stop doing this in our own lives. Because here's what's true about all of us in this room, okay? We are supreme justifiers of our own sin. We, we sin, and then in our minds, we're like, yeah, but it wasn't that bad. Yeah, but, oh, man, I was just so tired. I only got like seven and a half hours of sleep last night. I was hungry. I was hangry. Yeah, I know I yelled at that person, but, man, look, I've had a long day. Yeah, I know I looked at porn for the sixth night in the row, but honestly, man, it's just because I keep my phone so close to me at my bedside. Because the reality is, our temptation to look at this story and sometimes interpret it as, was it Bathsheba's fault, is just to say that we do that with our own sin. We look at our own sin and we're like, yeah, but isn't it anyone else's fault except me? And Saul Company, here's the type of community we need to be if we want to be the type of gospel community that invites people in and honors Jesus. We are real about our sin. We own our sin. I have fallen short of the glory of God. You have to be able to say that and say it in its entirety. And maybe for you, that begins tonight at worship. Own your sin. And guys, I, I want to really reiterate before we move on that this wasn't Bathsheba's fault. And it wasn't yours. And I know we keep coming back to this idea of, okay, who am I in this story, David or Bathsheba? I understand that's confusing, but I say that because you might even be playing that own game in your mind. 
of something happened when you were younger. And the narrative in your mind could be, well, if I just wasn't making that person so angry, they wouldn't have done that to me. If I wasn't drunk that Friday night, freshman year, that wouldn't have happened to me. And so in some way, you feel like you're responsible for the sin that was committed against you. And that has kept you in shame and unable to open up to the people in this community or the people in your life that really, really care about you. And I'm begging you tonight, just please open up. And I know it's going to be hard, but listen, in this room, there is no condemnation. In the culture out there, the message is shame on you. Within the room of the, of, of the church of God and the gospel, it's shame off you. So welcome into the family and walk in with scars. It's okay. And it's not your fault. This is a story that's often called David and Bathsheba, and that's really misleading because actually what I believe the correct title of this story to be is David took Bathsheba. Because this is a story of a king raping a woman and taking from her what wasn't his. He took from Bathsheba what wasn't hers or wasn't his in a time 3,000 years ago when women had no rights to say no. That he was a king of Jerusalem, king of Israel. Let me describe this for you. This is what King David had in terms of power and authority. He was the ruler, the judge, and the executor. He was the alternative to Bathsheba being used by David was to die. There was no no in her vocabulary when invited by the king. It wasn't an invitation. It was a command. And guys, what I, I want us to kind of land here for a second and realize that the sin in David, one, is in all of us, but two, is in all of humanity. That the story of David took Bathsheba is a story of all of humanity. And what I mean by that is, listen, if we could just get out of our, like, Western, politically correct worldviews, the, the idea of human beings being innately good would be insane would be absolutely atrocious to people experiencing this type of injustice all around the world and in our country and in our city. We would see that human beings are not innately good. From the Hinduistic, uh, cyclical worldviews and religion in Bangkok, Thailand, promoting sex slavery, to Pornhub, redefining our ability to see human beings as human beings and not sexual objects, we see that lust strips people of their identity and their dignity. This is not a a David and Bathsheba problem. This is a human problem. And we live in a world of lust. And none of us are exempt from that. So guys, I, I live in the basement of the Huntings. They're like incredible. Kaylee was one of the OGs that planted this thing a long time ago when it was way less cool, just want to say. She's great. One of, my best, uh, one of my favorite things about living with the Huntings is that I get to hang out with my best friend, and her name is Kate, and she's two. We're tight, okay? And one of the things that we've been doing recently is on Fridays, after Salt Company gets over and stuff, and I wake up the next day. Why did I just forget that? Okay. Uh, anyways, <laughs> on Friday, on Fridays, Sometimes what we do is um, I get her a baby frap from Starbucks. 
Yes, those exist. I literally went and I was like, hey, do you got anything for babies? And they were like, a baby frap? And I'm like, yes, that'd be great. That's what Kate does, guys. No lie. This is the funniest thing. I literally wait all week to see this. I give her the frap. She puts the straw to her mouth, kind of looks off into the distance, and doesn't stop drinking till it's gone. And I'm like, Kaylee, that's gifting. Like, look at that. She can chug like, like a baby frap. It's amazing. Okay. I love Kate. But let me build you a hypothetical scenario, right? I get, I get home Friday. I show up with my Starbucks drink, dunk on my baby frap. She looks at me. She's like, Tone, where's the frap? And I'm like, I'm not going to lie. Budget's a little tight. And let's say in response to that, she punches me in the face. She's two years old. She's pretty jacked for a two-year-old. She can do squats. We've taught her. She punches me in the face. Now, now, what would my response be to that, okay? First of all, I'd be a little peeved. I'd be like, Kate, listen, we've taught you more words than that. If you want a baby frap, you go get one. You know what I mean? You make your money, and you go get a baby frap. Like, that's what I would say. Two, I'd be like, oh, Kate, literally, I've got a little scar because i got a soft skin. You know that. I, I feel like we should know this by now. But honestly, it'd be kind of cute, right? How would we respond if I punched Kate in the face? Not so cute, because it could kill her, actually. Okay, so why? Why does it for some reason feel so wrong for me to punch Kate in the face, but we don't care if Kate punches me in the face? Because in my hand, I hold power. And there's nothing she can do to hurt me, but I can do everything to hurt her. Here's what I'm saying, is that in the moment that David saw off of his roof and looked into a a naked woman that was made in the image of God, in his hand he held power. She could not say no. And the insidiousness of this sin is that God didn't design David to live like that, and he didn't design the world to be the way that it is right now. That the, the grossness you should feel, like if you are a feeling human being, which I think you all are, if you are a feeling human being and you listen to this story of a king taking from a woman what wasn't his to take, taking from a husband his beautiful bride and taking away her dignity, what you should feel is injustice. Because in this world there is injustice. And it is incredibly painful. And for some of us in this room, we've grown numb to that reality. But what I need you to see is if you would know, like imagine if you were, Uri- if you were Bathsheba's mom, how would you feel? Imagine if you were Uriah's dad, how would you feel? We feel injustice when sin is backed by power. And one of the saddest things that I uncovered in this narrative that so further perpetuates this point is this idea that in verse 3 was the last time Bathsheba was called by Bathsheba. But actually, the narrator of this story does this literary work where as, as David enters the picture and enters Bathsheba, Bathsheba loses her name. From now on in the narrative, she's called the woman to signify that David did not just take her body, but he took her humanity. That's injustice. The next scene is that powerful sin demands death. Turn with me to chapter 11, 14 through 17. This is the death of Uriah. In the morning, 
David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there were valiant men. And then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among, among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So we move into this next scene of the story where scene one was that powerful sin takes. That as David looked out and he saw Bathsheba, he took from her what she couldn't say no to. And then in this next scene is that powerful sin demands death. So I want to set up what we just read, okay? So we just read verses 1 through 5. That was David taking Bathsheba. And then there's this chunk 6 through 13 that we didn't hit. And I want to describe to you how insidious this moment was for David. That in the shame that he felt from taking Bathsheba... The injustice that he knew that he had committed, this is what David does to Uriah. He starts by trying to invite him back home. So he invites him back from the battlefield, and he says, hey, man, go home. Take a week off. In hopes that Uriah would go home and sleep with Bathsheba so that David wouldn't have to deal with the consequences of his sin. That his sin birthed a child. And his hope was that if Uriah could just go home, sleep with his wife, hey, don't have to repent anymore. No one's got to find out. Nothing's wrong. But Uriah, instead of falling into that trap, he actually decides to live a faithful life and says to David, man, there's, there's my boys out on the field. They're fighting. The ark of God is out there. I will not go home in my comfort if I can just sleep at the steps of the palace. And so Uriah stays faithful. Round two. Later on in that section of scripture, this is what David does. The scripture wording is he made Uriah drunk. He forced Uriah to get wasted with the hopes that if an inebriated Uriah would lose some of his faithfulness and commitment and innocence towards God and he would go home and sleep with his wife. And yet even a drunk Uriah chose to be faithful when it was hard. This shows the heart condition of Uriah that he was a man that honored God more than he wanted his current pleasure. And then we find ourselves in verse 14. As David is pulling the trigger, he sends Uriah, this faithful servant of the Lord that wouldn't even go home to his wife as he was drunk, into the front lines of a battlefield on a suicide mission with other men. Let me just recap this story, okay? If we don't feel the weight of this, we need to feel the weight of this. This is David, King David, the, the king that Israel has been waiting for. Yes, Saul sucked. We got David now. This is what David does. He rapes a woman, murders a man, and then sacrifices other men as well just to cover up his own sin. This is David. Why? Because we do this too. We, because in this moment, as David felt shame, he had two options. He could either see that as conviction, repent, and turns to God put on his sackcloth and his ashes, or he could be sitting in his shame and sin more to cover up the shame. And this will be one of the most repetitive, frustrating cycles for you if you here are a Christian. You'll sin, and then you'll feel shame, and then you'll sin out of a place of shame. And it's this endless cycle that you can get caught up in if you just want to conceal the sin that you have had, but here's the way to get out of that cycle is you repent you turn to Jesus. 
You turn to your community and you say, yes, I've sinned, but here's what's true. is Jesus nailed those sins on this cross, and now I'm going to turn away and I'm going to turn to God. You have that choice. In that moment, David chose sin to cover up his shame. And this is a story of a king whose powerful sin demanded death to cover up what he had done. Uriah had to die. But the story isn't over as God enters the picture. We're going to look at chapter 12, 1 through 7. It's a big chunk, so stay with me, okay? Stay with me. In this moment, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now keep in mind, Nathan was a prophet. He was sent by God to David to be his advisor. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and another poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb which he had brought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd, of which he had many, to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. This is important. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man, and he said to Nathan, read this with me, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Verse 7 is where this story turns. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord of God, the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. See, what God does in this parable is he traps David in his own sin. Like the rich man, David had a lot of wives. At this point in the historical story, there's probably about seven and many a concubine that lived in his palace. So this story isn't simply about the insidiousness of him having sex outside of marriage. He had already fallen into that trap many a time and had married those women. It was actually about the sense of power in which he took Bathsheba. So that's one part of that. But Uriah had one wife, one wife that he adored. I love the parable because it's this idea that this poor man gave everything he had to buy this one lamb, and he cherished the lamb, and it meant everything to this poor man. But David, being in the position of power, of wealth, took what was Uriah's, for not even for himself. You guys get this? For a traveler, something that wasn't permanent, something that was fleeting, for his lust, that what the rich man does is he sacrifices the lamb of the poor man on the altar of feeding this traveler. What David does is he sacrifices Bathsheba on the altar of his lust for something that was fleeting. He took what meant everything to Uriah and gained momentary objectification and satisfaction from it. And then, in the great turn of this parable, Nathan says, you are the man. Keep in mind the verse before, this is what David said. He said, as the Lord lives, that man deserves to die. David just signed his own death certificate. 
And so I'll come to you. Here's what's true is I am that man. Like I'm just like David. And listen, we, we talk about this sometimes, but if you could see all the thoughts of my mind on the screens hanging up, you would see that the sin inside of my heart and the sin inside of my mind is far more insidious than the sin that we see in 2 Samuel 11. That if you would just have the correct lens in which to view your own sin, you would see that even within you, there is seed form of what has happened. And I'm telling you that you are David, that I am David. I've watched porn. And listen, I know we talk about porn a lot, but I need you to see this, that if you've ever watched porn, if you've ever, if you've ever objectified someone else, you have taken what is not yours to take. That image bearer of God was made by the glory of God and for the good of God and for the, the righteous marriage between one and another person. But for you to look at porn is to take what was not yours to take. If you've ever looked at a man or a woman down the street and imagined what you would like to do with that person in your mind, you have now labeled them beautiful but have not cared about any of the other qualities that God had gifted them with. That was not yours to take. If you've ever manipulated a friendship, you've gotten someone to do something for you that wasn't actually good for them, you have taken God's good, glorious plan for their life. That was not yours to take. And I need us to see this, that we are that man. And like David said, as the Lord lives, that man deserves death. And as Nathan has told us already, we are that man. That's one turn. Here's the great turn. That the seemingly greatest injustice in this entire story of a king using his power, authority, and, and position to rape a woman, kill her husband, and send other men to die on his altar of lust is verse 13. When David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. How dare he? How dare God forgive David of this sin? How dare God forgive us of our sin? That is the correct question that you have to ask when you read this story. That the reason why we can't just move by the sin that David did is because that would be the same way that we move by the sin that we've done. That to give excuses for David would be to give excuses for ourselves. And I need us to sit in this tension. How dare God forgive David? Doesn't David deserve death? And here's what is true about your life. Is that you, if you never understand that you deserve death as much as David deserves death in this moment, then you will never understand the doctrine of grace. The depths of grace. The oceans of grace that you are invited into. You will never understand the oceans of grace unless you understand that you deserve death because powerful sin demands death. So I want you guys to see this. That in the biblical narrative, it says that David's sins were put away. But I want you to see that they weren't just put away, but they were actually put on. That there would be a day, a thousand years later, as Jesus Christ would walk up onto the hills of Golgotha, that he would wear the sins of David and he would wear the sins of you. That every sin that humanity has ever done, that we have been so permeated by lust and all these different ways that we hurt people 
and dishonor God, Jesus Christ would wear those sins. It wasn't that your sin was put off of you, that it was put on Jesus. And that cup of wrath held the sin of David and it held the sin of you. And as that cup got poured onto Jesus' head, it would kill the Son of God. That is the sin that deserves death. Powerful sin demands it. See, my hope for you is that you would see that the seemingly radical injustice of forgiveness of David and the forgiveness of you on the cross would be flipped to see that it is the greatest act of love that anyone has ever done or will ever done for anyone in this room and for all of humanity. And he was God who took that upon the cross. That's what's true. It is radical love. And I want you guys to see that this is grace. There's a parallel between 2 Samuel 12 and John 19, where we get two courtrooms. In David's courtroom, David stands guilty in front of Nathan. In Pilate's courtroom, Jesus stands innocent. Nathan says to David, you are the man. Pilate says to Jesus, behold the man. In the courtroom of David, God sends Nathan to bring him back, to bring back his kid he loves so much, to redeem him from his sin, to invite him into life with him again. In the courtroom of Pilate, no one shows up. No one goes to the Pharisees and Pilate and says, you are the man. But instead, Jesus stands on the stand as the man. See, on the final courtroom of the cross, God doesn't send Nathan. And Jesus stands accused. The perfect judge who did not know sin, bore sin, not put away, but put on sin so that you and I could live in the freedom of his grace. I'm telling you, unless you understand that you deserve to die just as much as David deserved to die after he had raped a woman, murdered a man, and murdered many others, you will never understand the doctrine of grace. And it is too important for you to leave this room without seeing that you need grace, and grace happened on a cross. Guys, I've been just asking... Um, the spirit as I prep this message to to give me the words to shepherd you because I think for some of us in this room we are all Davids but some of us we resonate more with Bathsheba and, and I just want to let you know man it's like if you've ever had someone in authority over you in your life whether it was a parental figure a boss a coach, I don't know what it would be, but if you've ever had a person, an authority over your life who has abused that authority to hurt you for their pleasure, if you've ever felt objectified by the people that are so permeated by lust, this world that is so permeated by lust, if you've ever felt less than because of the things that have happened to you in your past, I want you to know that tonight is the night that you collide with Jesus. And that you see that not only does he know you, but he understands your pain. He understands the voicelessness that you feel, the, the insecurities that you feel. He understands the injustice that you feel in your heart. 
Tonight is the night that you look on the cross and you understand grace for your sins, but you also understand hope for your shame. That on that cross, he nailed your sins and he nailed your shame, and tonight you walk away free. You are brand new. You are a new creation. You are brand new in Christ Jesus. So please, run to him. He's gentle and lowly in heart, and he understands. Let me pray. Father, I've just been comforted by this idea recently that hurting trees bear fruit. And Lord, I can just feel in this room that there are many hurting trees here tonight that have been planted in you, that know you, Jesus, but still feel the scars and the pain of their past, that still feel gross and less than, that still feel shame, that still feel like Bathsheba. But Father, praise the living God that you would redeem Bathsheba from her brokenness and that she too would be in the lineage of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you would use broken moments like David took Bathsheba to give her new life. But Father, I also pray that we would be like David and say, Lord, I have sinned against you. And in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned. Father, I pray that as we enter into worship tonight, that we would bring our sin, that we would bring our shame, and that we would watch you on the cross nail those things down so that we would not have to put away our sin, but that the sin would be put on Jesus. Father, I just have a sense in this room there are a few students who just need deep healing tonight. They need to know, Jesus, that you know them and you understand their pain and the feelings and the hurt of the injustice that they have in their hearts. Father, they need to know. And Jesus, you proved you knew on the cross. You proved you knew as the powerful sin of the centurions, of Pilate, of the many that would nail nails into your hands, that would put a crown of thorns on your head, that powerful sin, sin backed by power, that you knew what it feels to feel they, the way they do. So Father, do something special tonight. Spirit, call us into worship. We need you, Jesus. Amen.